Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Globe Gazette for January 10, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shy. On the front page, the headline says, Judges Skeptical of Trump Claim. His lawyers argue that he's immune from criminal prosecution. With Donald Trump in the courtroom, federal appeals court judges in Washington expressed deep skepticism Tuesday that the former president is immune from prosecution on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The panel of three judges, two of whom were appointed by President Joe Biden, also questioned whether they had jurisdiction to consider the appeal at this point in the case, raising the prospect that Trump's appeal could be dismissed. During lengthy arguments, the judges repeatedly pressed Trump's lawyer to defend the claims that Trump was shielded from criminal charges for acts that he says fell within his official duties as president. The lower court judge overseeing the case against Trump rejected that argument last month, and the appeals judges suggested through their questions that they too were dubious that the Founding Fathers envisioned absolute immunity for presidents after they leave office. I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law, said Karen LaCraft Henderson, an appointee of former President George H.W. Bush. The outcome could carry enormous ramifications both for the landmark criminal case against Trump and for the broader and legally untested question of whether an ex-president can be prosecuted for actions taken in the White House. It will also likely set the stage for further appeals before the U.S. Supreme Court, which last month declined a request to weigh in, but could still get involved later. A swift decision is crucial for Special Counsel Jack Smith and his team, who are eager to get the case, now paused pending the appeal, to trial before the November election. Trump's lawyers, in addition to seeking to get the case dismissed, hope to benefit from a protracted appeals process that could delay the trial well past its scheduled March 4 start date, including until potentially after the election. It's not clear how quickly the panel from the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals from the D.C. Circuit will rule, though it signaled it intends to work quickly. Underscoring the importance to both sides, Trump, the 2024 Republican presidential primary frontrunner, attended Tuesday's arguments even though the Iowa caucuses are just one week away and despite the fact there's no requirement that defendants appear in person for such proceedings. His appearance and his comments afterward underscored his broader effort to portray himself as the victim of a justice system he claims is politicized. Though there's no evidence Biden has had any influence on the case, Trump's argument could resonate with Republican voters in Iowa as they prepare to launch the presidential nomination process. After the hearing, Trump spoke to reporters at a Washington hotel, calling Tuesday a very momentous day. 
He insisted he did nothing wrong and claimed he was being prosecuted for political reasons. A president has to have immunity, he said. Former presidents enjoy broad immunity from lawsuits for actions taken as part of their official White House duties. But because no former president before Trump has ever been indicted, courts have never before addressed whether that protection extends to criminal prosecution. Trump's lawyers insist it does, arguing that courts have no authority to scrutinize a president's official acts. To authorize the prosecution of a president for official acts would open a Pandora's box from which this nation may never recover, said D. John Sauer, a lawyer for Trump, asserting that, under the government's theory, presidents could be prosecuted for giving Congress false information to enter war or for authorizing drone strikes targeting U.S. citizens abroad. He later added, If a president has to look over his shoulder or her shoulder every time he or she has to make a controversial decision and wonder if, after I leave office, am I going to jail for this when my political opponents take power, that inevitably dampens the ability of the president. The judges were skeptical about those arguments. Judges Henderson and Florence Pan noted the lawyer who represented Trump during his impeachment trial suggested that he could later face criminal prosecution, telling senators at the time, we have a judicial process in this country. We have an investigative process in this country to which no former officeholder is immune. Judge J. Michelle Childs also questioned why former President Richard Nixon would need to be granted a pardon in 1974 after the Watergate scandal if former presidents enjoy immunity from prosecution. Sauer replied that in Nixon's case, the conduct did not involve the same kind of official acts Trump's lawyers argue form the basis for his indictment. Smith's team maintains that presidents are not entitled to absolute immunity and that in any event, the acts Trump is alleged in the indictment to have taken fall far outside a president's official job duties. The president has a unique constitutional role, but he is not above the law, Prosecutor James Pierce said, adding that a case in which a former president is alleged to have sought to overturn an election is not the place to recognize some novel form of immunity. Never before has there been allegations that a sitting president has, with private individuals and using the levers of power, sought to fundamentally subvert the democratic republic and the electoral system, he said. And frankly, if that kind of pattern arises again, I think it would be awfully scary if there weren't some sort of mechanism by which to reach that criminally. Also on the front page, an article entitled Earth Shattered Global Heat Record in 23 and its Flirting with Warming Limit, European Agency says. Earth last year shattered global annual heat records, flirted with the world's agreed-upon warming threshold, and showed more signs of a feverish planet, the European Climate Agency said on Tuesday. 
In one of the first of several teams of science agencies to calculate how off the charts warm 2023 was, the European Climate Agency, Copernicus, said the year was 1.48 degrees Celsius, 2.66 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial times. That's barely below the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit that the world hoped to stay within in the 2015 Paris Climate Accord to avoid the most severe effects of warming. And January 2024 is on track to be so warm that for the first time a 12-month period will exceed the 1.5 degree threshold, Copernicus Director, Deputy Director Samantha Burgess said. Scientists have repeatedly said that Earth would need to average 1.5 degrees of warming over two or three decades to be a technical breach of the threshold. The 1.5 degree goal has to be kept alive because lives are at risk and choices have to be made, Burgess said. And these choices don't impact you and I, but they impact our children and our grandchildren. The record heat made life miserable and sometimes deadly in Europe, North America, China, and many other places last year. But scientists say a warming climate is also to blame for more extreme weather events, like the lengthy drought that devastated the Horn of Africa, the torrential downpours that wiped out dams and killed thousands in Libya, and the Canada wildfires that fouled the air from North America to Europe. For the first time, nations meeting for annual United Nations climate talks in December agreed that the world needs to transition away from the fossil fuels that are causing climate change. But they set no concrete requirements to do so. Copernicus calculated that the global average temperature for 2023 was about one-sixth of a degree Celsius, 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than the old record set in 2016. While that seems a small amount in global record-keeping, it's an exceptionally large margin for the new record, Burgess said. Earth's average temperature for 2023 was 14.98 degrees Celsius, 58.96 degrees Fahrenheit, Copernicus calculated. It was record-breaking for seven months. We had the warmest June, July, August, September, October, November, and December, Burgess said. It wasn't just a season or a month that was exceptional. It was exceptional for over half the year. There are several factors that made 2023 the warmest year on record, but by far the biggest factor was the ever-increasing amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that trap heat, Burgess said. Those gases come from the burning of coal, oil, and natural gas. Other factors, including the natural El Nino, a temporary warming of the central Pacific that alters weather worldwide, other natural oscillations in the Arctic, southern and Indian oceans, increased solar activity, and the 2022 eruption of an undersea volcano that sent water vapor into the atmosphere, Burgess said. Malte Meinhausen, a University of Melbourne climate scientist, 
said about 1.3 degrees Celsius of the warming comes from greenhouse gases, with another one-tenth degree Celsius from El Nino and the rest being smaller causes. Given El Nino and record ocean heat levels, Birches said, it's extremely likely that 2024 will be even hotter than 2023. Copernicus records only go back to 1940 and are based on a combination of observations and forecast models. Other groups, including the United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and NASA, the United Kingdom's Meteorological Office and Berkeley Earth, go back to the mid-1800s and will announce their calculations for 2023 on Friday with expectations of record-breaking marks. The Japanese Meteorological Society Agency, the Japanese Meteorological Agency, which uses similar techniques as Copernicus and goes back to 1948, late last month, estimated that it was the warmest year at 1.47 degrees Celsius, 2.64 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. The University of Alabama Huntsville Global Dataset, which uses satellite measurements rather than ground data and dates to 1979, last week also found it the hottest year on record, but not by as much. Though actual observations only date back less than two centuries, several scientists say evidence from tree rings and ice cores suggest this is the warmest the Earth has been in more than 100,000 years. 2023 was probably hottest year on Earth in about 125,000 years, said Woodwell Climate Research Center climate scientist Jennifer Francis. Humans were around before that, but it's certainly fair to say it's the hottest since humans became civilized, depending on the definition of civilized. Amid record hot months were days that were downright unprecedented hot across the globe. For the first time, Copernicus recorded a day where the world averaged at least 2 degrees Celsius, 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit, more than pre-industrial times. It happened twice and narrowly missed a third day around Christmas, Burgess said. And for the first time, Every day of the year was at least 1 degree Celsius, 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than pre-industrial times. For nearly half the year, 173 days, the world was 1.5 degrees warmer than the mid-1800s. Meinhausen, the Australian climate scientist, said it's natural for the public to wonder whether the 1.5 degree target is lost. He said it's important for people to keep trying to rein in warming. We are not abolishing a speed limit because somebody exceeded the speed limit, he said. We double our efforts to step on the brake. In national and world news, we find an article entitled Storms Sweep the Nation. People across South and Midwest endure tornadoes, heavy snow. A sprawling storm hit the U.S. south with tornado warnings and high winds 
that blew roofs off homes, flipped over campers, and tossed about furniture in Florida on Tuesday. Another storm buried cities across the Midwest in more than a half a foot of snow, stranding people on highways as it headed to the Northeast. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said at a briefing that storms continue to be a threat across the U.S. We are closely monitoring the weather and we encourage all Americans to do the same, she said. At least three deaths were attributed to the storm in the south, where 55-mile-an-hour winds and hail moved through the Florida panhandle and into parts of Alabama and Georgia by sunrise on Tuesday, along with several reports of radar-confirmed tornadoes, the National Weather Service said. Storm-related injuries were reported in Florida, but no deaths. Multiple tornadoes were reported in Bay County, Sheriff Tommy Ford said in a Facebook Live post. Heavy rain across Georgia stopped air traffic at Atlanta's busy airport for a time Tuesday morning and caused flash flooding. More than 80 public school systems across Georgia called off classes entirely, while the others taught students online or delayed the start of in-person classes. More than 200,000 customers were without power in Florida, Alabama, and Georgia, while nearly 150,000 people in North Carolina lacked electricity, according to the Power Oddage U.S. website. In the Midwest, where snowstorms started Monday, up to 12 inches of snow could blanket a broad area stretching from southeastern Colorado all the way to the upper peninsula of Michigan. That includes western Kansas, eastern Nebraska, parts of Iowa, northern Missouri, and northwestern Illinois, said Bob Orovec, a forecaster with the National Weather Service in Maryland. Poor road conditions contributed to a fatal crash early Tuesday in Wisconsin, Jefferson County Sheriff Paul Milbrath said in a news release. An SUV driver was killed in a head-on collision with a semi-trailer on State Highway 18 about 5.40 a.m. The driver of the semi-trailer was not hurt. In western Michigan, a 35-year-old woman died Tuesday after she lost control of her minivan on a slushy highway and it collided with an SUV, the Lake County Sheriff's Office said. From the Midwest, the storm was expected to head east, bringing snow, rain, and strong winds to the northeast by Tuesday night. From the Middle East, we find an article entitled, Blinken Talks of Palestinian State. He says, U.S. rejects idea to settle Gazans outside the territory. During a visit to the region Tuesday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called on Israel to work with moderate Palestinians and neighboring countries on plans for post-war Gaza, saying they were willing to help rebuild and govern the territory, but only if there is a pathway to a Palestinian state. The U.S. and Israel are united in the war against Hamas, but sharply divided over Gaza's future, with Washington and its Arab allies hoping to revive the long moribund peace process, an idea that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his coalition partners oppose. 
The war in Gaza is still raging <clears throat> with no end in sight and fueling a humanitarian catastrophe in the tiny coastal enclave. The fighting has also stoked escalating violence between Israel and Lebanon's Hezbollah militants that has raised fears of a wider conflict. Speaking at a news conference after meeting with top Israeli leaders, Blinken said Israel must stop taking steps that undercut the Palestinians' ability to govern themselves effectively. Israel, he added, must be a partner of the Palestinian leaders who are willing to lead their people and live side by side in peace with Israel. Settler violence, settlement expansion, home demolitions and evictions all make it harder, not easier, for Israel to achieve lasting peace and security. U.S. officials have called for the Palestinian Authority, which administers parts of the Israeli-occupied West Bank, to take the reins in Gaza. Israeli leaders reject that idea, but have not put forward a concrete plan. Blinken has said Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, and Turkey agreed to begin planning for the reconstruction and governance of Gaza once the war ends. The leaders of Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority are set to meet Wednesday in Jordan's southern Red Sea city of Aqaba. Since the war began, Israel's assault in Gaza has killed more than 23,200 Palestinians, and more than 58,000 people have been wounded, according to the health ministry in Hamas-run Gaza. About two-thirds of the dead are women and children. The death toll does not distinguish between combatants and civilians. Next, an article entitled Judge Sentences Target of Right-Wing Conspiracies. Epps, get a year, Epps gets a year of probation for his role in the 2021 Capitol riot. A man targeted by right-wing conspiracy theories about the U.S. Capitol riot was sentenced on Tuesday to a year of probation for joining the January 6, 2021 attack by a mob of fellow Donald Trump supporters. Ray Epps, a former Arizona resident who was driven into hiding by death threats, pleaded guilty in September to a misdemeanor charge. He received no jail time, and there were no restrictions placed on his travel during his probation, but he will have to serve 100 hours of community service. Prosecutors had recommended a six-month prison term for Epps. Fox News Channel and other right-wing media outlets amplified conspiracy theories that Epps, 62, was an undercover government agent who helped incite the Capitol attack to entrap Trump supporters. Epps filed a defamation lawsuit against Fox News last year, saying the network was to blame for spreading baseless claims about him. Epps told the judge that he now knows he never should have believed his, the lies about a stolen election that Trump and his allies told and that Fox News broadcast. And now an article entitled, Doctors Say Austin Was Treated for Cancer, UTI, Urinary Tract Infection. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has prostate cancer and his recent secretive hospitaliza hospitalization 
was for surgery and later to treat a urinary tract infection related to that operation, his doctor said on Tuesday. The cancer revelation answers the main question about Austin's hospitalization, which has now lasted eight days. But it may only add to the questions of accountability, since President Joe Biden only learned about the cancer diagnosis Tuesday, even though it was made about a month ago. Austin, 70, was admitted to Walter Reed National Military Medical Center on December 22 and underwent surgery to treat the cancer. He developed the infection a week later. Biden and other senior administration officials were not told for days about his hospitalizations. Doctors said Austin underwent a minimally invasive surgical procedure and went home the next day. On January 1, he reported nausea and severe abdominal, hip, and leg pain due to the infection. They said his prostate cancer was detected early and his prognosis is excellent. The lack of transparency about Austin's hospitalization triggered sharp criticism. A couple of other short news digests. Maine Democrats defeat GOP in push impeachment push. Democrats who control the Maine legislature rejected a Republican effort on Tuesday to impeach the state's top election official for her decision to remove former President Donald Trump from the state ballot over his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Maine House voted 80-60 to 60 against the resolution targeting Shanna Bellows, the first Secretary of State in history, to block someone from running for president by invoking the U.S. Constitution's Insurrection Clause. Bellows, who watched the entire proceeding from the gallery, vowed to abide by any legal ruling on her decision to keep Trump off Maine's March 5 primary ballot, which is under appeal in Maine Superior Court. Republicans argued Bellows' decision disenfranchised the more than 300,000 Maine voters who chose Trump in 2020. Next article, Russian attacks force Ukraine to use up stocks. Russia's recent escalation of missile and drone attacks is stretching Ukraine's air defense resources, a Ukrainian Air Force official said Tuesday, leaving the country vulnerable in the 22-month war unless it can secure further weapons supplies. Intense Russian air attacks force us to use a corresponding amount of air defense means, Air Force spokesman Yuri Enot told national television. That's why we need more of them, as Russia keeps increasing its air attack capabilities. The Russian attacks used large numbers of various types of missiles in an apparent effort to saturate air defense systems and find gaps in Ukraine's defenses and are using up Ukraine's weapons stockpiles. Ukraine uses weapons from the Soviet era and more modern ones provided by its Western allies. Authorities want to build up the country's own weapons manufacturing capabilities, and analysts say those plants are among Russia's recent targets. Hello, and welcome to the reading of The Messenger for January 10, 2024. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. On the front page today, the major article, 
On the front page, the major headline reads, Central Iowa gets its first taste of winter. Despite snow and ice-covered roads and highways, no major vehicle accidents happened on Tuesday after the Fort Dodge area received nearly six inches of snow, local law enforcement say. We were fortunate that we didn't get all the snow that they got south of us, said Webster County Sheriff Luke Fleener. Right now, the roads are in pretty good shape. After the snowfall ended, some of it began melting and refreezing on the roads, Fleener said. We've had a few semis sliding around, but we haven't had any serious accidents, he said. We hope that continues. The wind is the biggest problem now. As it gets dark, it'll be hard to see when the wind blows the snow across. U.S. Highway 20 and U.S. Highway 169 were both 100% ice-covered, causing travel issues, according to Iowa State Patrol Trooper Paul Gardner. Several semi-trailers jackknifed on the slick highways, and many cars slid off the road into ditches, but no injuries were reported in the Webster County area, he said. Down in southeast Iowa, where they got the brunt of it, Interstate 80 had some road closures, and they had a lot of whiteout conditions, Gardner said. Up here, we were dealing with wind and snow being blown across the roadways, but we didn't have the amount of snow like southern Iowa did. So that helps keep the call volume down a little bit up here. Both Fleener and Gardner said there were fewer cars on the road than a typical Tuesday. I think having no school cut down on the amount of traffic and then having plenty of warning helped people prepare for it, Fleener said. So not a lot of traffic on the roads other than business stuff. Though there was less traffic on the roads, the Iowa State Patrol remained busy throughout the day, Gardner said. With this being our first real snowstorm, I think things went pretty well overall, he said. The people who are out there, they're doing a pretty good job of maintaining control. The snowfall analysis provided by the National Weather Service shows about six inches of snow came down in the Fort Dodge area. While the winter storm warning issued by the National Weather Service out of Des Moines expired on Tuesday evening, another one to two inches of snow is possible around Fort Dodge today, according to the National Weather Service. The Fort Dodge Community School District announced Tuesday afternoon that today would have a two-hour late start for schools. Bridget temperatures are also in the forecast for Iowa in the coming days, with wind chills expected to be well below zero this weekend, according to the National Weather Service. Also on the front page, an article entitled School Board OK's Dodger Stadium Project. The nearly century-old Dodger Stadium will undergo a massive renovation this year. On Monday, the Fort Dodge Community School District Board of Education approved a roughly $4.9 million bid from Colossia Construction of Fort Dodge for the project. The project includes tearing down the existing home locker room, rebuilding the locker room, adding on to the concessions area, adding a new entrance, adding new restrooms and upgraded handicapped parking, said Ryan Utley, Director of Buildings and Grounds for the District. Colossia's bid includes the base bid for the project, as well as three alternates for the concessions, stands, fiber conduits, and west parking lot. 
the initial engineer's estimate for the project, including the three alternates, was 5,766,483.73. Colossia Construction came in with a low bid of 4,865,418. Other bids received were 4,887,900 from Jensen Builders Limited of Fort Dodge, 5,086 from Woodruff Construction of Fort Dodge, and 5,169,873 from Sandy Construction and Supply of Humble. The Dodger Stadium project will be paid for using funds from the district's revenue from state sales tax and physical plant and equipment levy. Brandon Hansel, Executive Director of Financial Services for the district, previously told the messenger, We've been saving up for the last few years, and we're going to be paying cash for the project, he said. The board also approved a $23,254 quote from REW Services of Des Moines for asbestos abatement at Dodger Stadium. That work is expected to begin this week, Utley said. Other asbestos abatement bids included $35,850 from Site Services of Algona and $37,000 from Environmental Property Solutions of Urbandale. In other business, the board also approved a $23,400 agreement with Aptogee of Little Rock, Arkansas, for the development of a district mobile app and redesign of the district's website. The new website and app will be built over the coming months and are expected to launch July 1. Again, on the front page, an article entitled Fort Dodge Police Department Searching for Person of Interest in December 29 Shooting Death. The Fort Dodge Police Department is now calling the December 29 shooting death of Ryan R. Andrews of Fort Dodge a homicide and is looking for a person of interest. David S. Dayton, 37, of Fort Dodge, is wanted by investigators for questioning in Andrews' homicide. Dayton is a white male, 6 feet 5 inches tall, weighs 235 pounds, and has blue eyes and short brown hair. Dayton is also wanted out of Pocahontas County for a parole violation stemming from an original charge of drug abuse violation. The Webster County Crime Stoppers are offering a $500 reward for information that leads to the specific and current whereabouts of Dayton. Anyone with information is encouraged to call the police department at 515-573-1424 or contact Webster County Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers can be reached at 515-573-1444 or by texting LEC and the information to Crimes 274637. Andrews was found unresponsive on the ground with an apparent gunshot wound when law enforcement was called to the 1600 block of 14th Avenue Southwest at 5.16 a.m. on January on December 29. Officers and medics with the Fort Dodge Fire Department rendered medical aid to Andrews before he was transported to Unity Point Health, Trinity Regional Medical Center, where he was later pronounced dead. The Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation is assisting in the investigation into the incident. 
Dayton has a long felony criminal record. In 2006, he was found guilty of first-degree burglary in Humboldt County. A charge of assault while participating in a felony was dismissed in that case. Also in 2006, Dayton pleaded guilty to one count of third-degree burglary of an unoccupied vehicle in Pocahontas County. In 2013, he pleaded guilty to conspiracy to manufacture methamphetamine in Webster County. He also pleaded guilty to possession of methamphetamine in Webster County in 2019 and 2020. Also on the front page, Council considers plan for more police. Adding eight members to the 40-member Fort Dodge Police Department offers the best option for deterring crime in the community, Police Chief Dennis Quinn told the City Council on Monday. I can see a lot of huge gains by adding these officers, he said. This is a great step in the right direction. The additional officers would be paid for with revenue from a new 5% franchise fee that would appear on the monthly electric and gas bills of mid-American energy customers. That fee is projected to generate $2.4 million a year. In addition to the police officers, the money would be spent to help pay off general obligation bond debt, driving down a portion of the property tax. Franchise fee revenue would also be used to pay for things like the Carl King Band and Citizen Central. It would also help pay for infrastructure projects. The Council on Monday began the long process of, of implementing the franchise fee by scheduling a public hearing on it for 6 p.m. January 22 in the Municipal Building at 819 First Avenue South. The fee proposal must be approved by the Council three times in order to go into effect. If it wins Council approval, it will be implemented on July 1. If the franchise fee is approved, the 1% local option sales tax will no longer be collected on gas and electric bills. None of the council members offered their opinion of the franchise fee proposal. The concept of adding eight more police officers generated more enthusiasm. This is something a lot of people have been asking for, Councilman Cameron Nelson said. I think it is needed. City Manager David Fierke said he submitted the franchise fee proposal to the council for two major reasons. Adding police officers is one of those reasons. We have a crime problem to deal with, he told the council on Monday. He said that without revenue from the proposed franchise fee, there is no way to add more officers unless some other agency in the general fund budget is severely reduced. Fierke said a recent property tax law change enacted by the legislature and Governor Kim Reynolds, is the second major reason for considering a franchise fee. He said the property tax law hurt our ability long-term to sustain reasonable revenues for the general fund. That law eliminates levies that paid for the Carl King Band and Citizen Central, creates a new combined levy for cities, and imposes property tax cuts if valuation increases by 3% or more. If the franchise fee is approved, the city will hire five more police officers in the fiscal year that begins July 1. 
it will hire three more in the fiscal year that begins July 1, 2025. Quinn said four officers will be added to patrol. He said a three-member community action team will be created. He described the team as a hybrid between patrol and detective. It will be deployed in places and at times when additional policing is needed. For example, team members could spend time in a neighborhood where a lot of vehicles have been broken into. They're going to be very driven by whatever the community needs, Quinn said. The hiring of of additional officers will also enable one more detective position to be created. The council on Monday reviewed a proposed $4 million budget for the police department. That proposal is based on the current 40 officer force. Fierke said if the franchise fee is approved, $754,000 will be added to the budget to pay for the first five new officers. And finally, on the front page, morning fire damages house. A house in the Coleman district was badly, badly damaged in a Tuesday morning fire but no one was injured. The fire at 1500 22nd Avenue South was reported at 8.30 a.m. There was heavy black smoke coming out of the house when firefighters arrived, according to Fire Chief Steve Hergenretter. A resident was home but got outside on her own before firefighters arrived. Hergenreeder said one hose line was used to extinguish the fire which started in the kitchen and spread to part of the attic. Firefighters had to tear down some of the ceiling in order to extinguish the fire in the attic. They had to do a lot of overhaul work to get at hot spots, the fire chief said. He said the house sustained heavy fire damage in the kitchen and part of the attic, with smoke damage throughout the rest of the house. The cause of the fire remained undetermined Tuesday evening. The house is owned by Larry L. Pingle, according to online records at the Webster County Assessor's Office. Firefighters were on the scene for about two hours. And now some brief local news items. Fort Dodge Fire Department adds three members. Three new firefighters have been hired in Fort Dodge to fill vacancies. They are... Gavin Hills, a former volunteer firefighter from West Branch, who earned an associate degree in fire science from Des Moines Area Community College. Connor Hansen, a former volunteer firefighter from Webster City, who is in the Emergency Medical Technician Program at Iowa Central Community College. He is the son of Police Captain Steve Hansen. Joe Sherman, who earned an associate degree in fire science from Iowa Central Community College and was a volunteer EMT in his hometown in Illinois. Blue scholarship applications are available. Applications for the 2024 Robert D. Blue Scholarship are now available, according to the state treasurer, Roby Smith. Applicants must be current senior or graduate of any Iowa high school who plan to attend a college or university within the state. Awards are based on financial need and original essay, academic achievement, and recommendations. Scholarship applications are only accepted online and must be submitted by May 10. Go to rdblue.org to apply. 
We know the price of higher education is rising, but we also know it has significant benefits like higher earnings, more career options, and personal growth development, Smith said in a written statement. The Robert D. Blue Scholarship helps students achieve these and more, which is why I encourage all eligible Iowans to apply, no matter where they are at on their higher education journey. And also on trash collection changes announced, any Fort Dodge sanitation customers on the Tuesday route who did not have their trash picked up on Tuesday should put it out for collection Thursday morning, according to an announcement from the city. The Thursday route garbage collection will be done on Friday. And now a look at the Messenger editorial. It's called a thank you for a job well done. Dedicated snowplow operators help keep our streets and roadways safe to travel. During a big winter storm, such as the one that blew into Fort Dodge Monday night, lots of people like to stay inside, sipping their favorite hot beverage while they watch the white stuff pile up outside. But one group of people goes out in every storm, and the work of these unsung heroes makes it possible for everyone to travel in snowy conditions. They are the men and women who drive snowplows. They are employed by the Iowa Department of Transportation, counties, and cities. Their mission requires them to maneuver big trucks and sometimes motor graders and loaders in the worst conditions an Iowa winter can produce. Getting the roads ready for everyone else's morning commute usually requires them to be out on the roads long before the sun rises. They work long hours. Darkness, frigid temperatures, ice, and blowing snow are the typical conditions they deal with. While these drivers make it possible for the rest of us to go about our daily routines during the winter, they rarely get a thank you or hear a compliment. In fact, quite often they're the target of complaints. They get an earful when some of the snow is removed from the street to make it safe for a resident to travel ends up in a driveway. And other motorists heap scorn on the drivers when they plow when the plow truck that's making it safe for them to travel isn't going fast enough to suit them. These snowplow drivers perform a vital task in horrendous conditions. They deserve the thanks and praise of everyone else who has to venture out on wintry roads. To snowplow operators everywhere, we say thank you for a good, well-done job. And we urge everyone else on the road to stay clear of the plows. Let them do their work and your trip will be a lot safer and smoother. In national news, we have an article entitled, With Trump Present in Court, Judges Express Skepticism of Claims That He's Immune from Prosecution. With Donald Trump listening intently in the courtroom, federal appeals court judges in Washington expressed deep skepticism Tuesday that the former president was immune from prosecution on charges that he plotted to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The panel of three judges, two of whom were appointed by President Joe Biden, also questioned whether they had jurisdiction to consider the appeal at this point in the case, raising the prospect that Trump's appeal could be dispensed with on more procedural grounds. 
During lengthy arguments, the judges repeatedly pressed Trump's lawyer to defend claims that Trump was shielded from criminal charges for acts that he says fell within his official duties as president. That argument was rejected last month by the lower court judge overseeing the case against Trump, and the appeals judges suggested through their questions that they too were dubious that the Founding Fathers envisioned absolute immunity for presidents after they leave office. I think it's paradoxical to say that his constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed allows him to violate criminal law, said Judge Karen LaCraft Henderson, an appointee of former President George H.W. Bush. The outcome could carry enormous ramifications both for the landmark criminal case against Trump and for the broader and legally untested question of whether an ex-president can be prosecuted for actions taken in the White House. It will also likely set the stage for further appeals before the U.S. Supreme Court, which last month declined their request to weigh in but could still get involved later. In sports, the major headline says Hilton Magic Reigns. Iowa State stuns lone unbeaten number two Houston. Tamman Lipsy scored 14 points. Freshman Milan Mumsilovic made a baseline jumper with 30.2 seconds left, and Iowa State beat number two Houston 57 53 on Tuesday night to knock off the nation's final unbeaten team. Iowa State, 12 3 overall, 1 1 in the Big 12 secured its seventh win against a top-ten opponent in the last two seasons, most in Division I. Houston, 14-1 overall, 1-1 in the Big 12, had a 12-game road winning streak snapped. Iowa State forward Hassan Ward made two free throws with a minute 20 seconds remaining, but he was whistled for a lane violation on the second free throw to keep their lead at 53-51. Houston's Jamal Shade split a double team and made a jumper with 55.9 seconds left to tie it at 53-all. After an Iowa State timeout, Momsilovic spun away from a double team and sank a jumper from a difficult angle for a 55-53 lead. L.J. Cryer's three-pointer hit hard off the backboard and Momsilovic was fouled at 10 seconds before making two free throws for a four-point lead. Momsilovic finished with 11 points on four of eight shooting for Iowa State. His go-ahead shot was his first basket of the second half. Emmanuel Sharp scored 20 points, reaching the mark for the fourth time this season for Houston. Shade added 14 points, surpassing 1,000 for his career. Cryer, averaging a team-high 17.1 points per game, was held scoreless in the first half and finished with five points. Houston trailed at halftime, 31-21, for the first time this season, after scoring its fewest points in any half. Iowa State scored 15 points off of 12 turnovers against a Houston team, averaging just 9.1 turnovers per game. The Cougars were just 6 of 20 shooting, 30%, in the first half, 
including four of 13 from distance. Iowa State missed nine straight shots, going scoreless for over six minutes in the second half. Houston capitalized when Shade made a jumper from the free-throw line with three minutes, 17 seconds remaining for their first lead of the game at 51-50. Robert Jones ended the Cyclones' drought with an easy layup. And regarding the Iowa Hawkeyes, we have an article entitled Freeman Earns Fifth League Honor. University of Iowa forward Owen Freeman has been named the Big Ten Freshman of the Week. It was announced Monday by the league office. The honor is Freeman's fifth of the season. The Moline, Illinois native earned the distinction after averaging 14.5 points, 8.5 rebounds, and 2.5 blocks while shooting 75% from the field during two Big Ten games against number 21 Wisconsin and Rutgers. Freeman opened the week by posting his second double-double, finishing with points and a career-high 13 rebounds. He made seven of nine field goals and finished with three blocks in a career-high 37 minutes. He became the first Hawkeye freshman since Luga Garza to post multiple double-doubles.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.